0: I'm Lisa Hamilton from the Annie E. Casey Foundation, and this is CaseyCast. Today's guest, Dan Cardinale, serves as the president and CEO of Independent Sector, a national membership organization that brings together nonprofits, foundations, and corporations to advance the common good. Dan also is a former Children and Family Fellow, having completed an 18-month executive leadership program with the Casey Foundation in 2008. We're excited to have Dan join us to talk about trends in the nonprofit sector. Dan, welcome. We're happy to have you on Casey Cast.
1: Lisa, I'm delighted to be here.
0: Wonderful. Can you talk some about the path you've taken professionally and how it led you to where you are today?
1: Sure. Um, I kind of started with, uh, like probably many of us, never imagining I would be in this job. Uh, I grew up in a, a very kind of conservative, religious, but socially progressive family and spent most of my young adult life doing community organizing in Latin America. Mm. Um, And when I came back to the United States, I had a fellowship at Georgetown and then really was very, very uh, lucky to be um, invited to work at communities in schools where I spent 17 years. And that, in a way that I had no idea, very much prepared me for my current job in that I watched how nonprofits and philanthropy, in partnership with business, Um, really drove uh, a social good. It was a source of innovation that helped improve public education. And then we did that at scale, about 1.5 million students. And we learned um, what worked and what didn't. We used rigorous evaluation and then partnered with um, the federal government in the reauthorization of the Elementary and Secondary Education Act and kind of fundamentally improved the way Title I dollars were more equitably distributed uh, to public schools. So, uh, what I watched uh, was how civil society could play this very powerful role in partnership with government um, and business to drive uh, a public good, public education. Mm. So, I stepped into this job uh, very much believing that uh, nonprofits and philanthropy are critical resources to the health of our of our nation.
0: And you've had the benefit of seeing that work on the ground and being a leader uh, of an organization and understanding the system and policy issues that inform that work as well.
1: That's right. Um, Very much in in collaboration. I I think the beauty of communities and schools taught me very much that collective leadership is really the most effective way to drive sustainable change.
0: Hmm. So tell me about uh, independent sector. What does the organization do? Who does it represent?
1: It's a great question, and, and that is a work in progress. We are a 40-year-old uh, kind of traditional membership last trade association organization. Our founding was really to drive a, uh, a public voice in partnership with our members around public policy that affected civil society. So we were created to really defend the independence of nonprofits and philanthropy so they could fully take up their role. Um, in supporting democracy, but also being uh, a force to hold government and business accountable to really promoting the common good. And over many years, we uh, built a membership base of about 450, mostly of the really large nonprofits and philanthropic institutions. And uh, we very much take um, those members very seriously in their leadership role in helping drive impact for civil society. But most recently, we've really shifted to including much more intentionally community voice and smaller nonprofits and philanthropic leaders to make sure that we're kind of inclusive of the full range of civil society and how we go about representing to Congress, and really to the nation, what civil society is doing and what it can and should be doing in Mm. service of the country.
0: I'm sure things have changed a lot over the 40 years that independent sector has existed. I'm curious about what some of the big issues are facing the sector at this moment in time.
1: I would say that there are three. Um, Kind of the most important, in my estimation, is the existential reality of a changing environment, Mm. that unless we... Uh, as a nation and as a really a world, uh, begin to fundamentally change our behavior, we're going to have increasing uh, issues facing uh, global poverty, uh, the sustainability of many people, probably not the human race, but many people in, in the world. We already see the implications of that with the kind of a global migration crisis. Mm-hmm. The second, then, issue and the pathway to solving that is democracy. That it is, in fact, uh, and the U.S. is probably still one of the most important examples of the experiment where a multidimensional, multiracial democracy is able to navigate a pluralistic set of uh, of experiences and come up with common solutions. I think we're at a time when that is under siege. And in order for us to respond to the crisis in the environment, we're going to need to have a robust democracy. And so really, we as a nation need to double down on the health of our own democracy. And we can't do that unless we confront the the third issue, which is we are at a moment where um, there is a reckoning in the nation around racial equality. And until we can step fully into that and do the hard work of being structurally inclusive of all folks, particularly folks of color, and harness their wisdom and and, uh, leadership in an equitable way, we won't be able to have a healthy democracy. So those would be the three big issues, I think, that are facing civil society, and we are uniquely positioned to be able to respond to that.
0: How do you see the sector stepping up to face these really huge um, systemic challenges that aren't just um, uh, a challenge here in the U.S., but really global issues, as you noted?
1: I think the US still is uh, a global power, whether we're the most powerful nation in the world or one of the most powerful people can have that debate. But the fact is we are a nation that if we are robust and strong, we can play a disproportionate impact in helping solve these problems globally. Mm -hmm. So getting our house in order is what we need to do. And I think if you look historically at civil society in the United States, it's one of the world's crown jewels of a robust nonprofit and philanthropic sector. So... It is uh, a role we have historically played over the course of our, our country 's history that we um, in civil society are a place where we wrestle with those sets of challenges that neither government or the business community can actually wrestle with or at least successfully on its own, so those are these sets of things that don 't have market solutions or government solutions. Mm-hmm. And um, so, you know, the think tanks or philanthropic institutions like Casey or nonprofits who are social innovators, you know, have historically been an engine of innovation. So in general, we should provide the sets of of resources and the freedom for civil society to really take up its role. One very specific thing that I'd love to mention is the um, incredible muscle of democracy. That if you look at civil society, you know, be it volunteer-led organizations or organizations like independent sector, which are membership organizations, we build the muscle of democracy, of how we harness equitable voices, how we provide uh, leadership opportunities, how we um, kind of model uh, pluralism and the storming of different points of view and coming to compromise solutions that allow for action. So... Most of us in civil society are focused on sub-issues, like um, I I spent a lot of time uh, thinking about education reform. I didn't, in my former job, think about how I led uh, communities and schools as a a democratic muscle-building institution. Mm -hmm. I think that is the clarion call all of us have now today, regardless of the specific issue that we want to focus in on.
0: I think that's a beautiful idea that uh, the nonprofit sector Builds the muscle of democracy. That's a, a beautiful way of putting it. I don't know that many people understand the breadth of the nonprofit uh, and charitable sector. How would you describe the the sector to help people understand how big it is and why it really does have the ability to do what what you're talking about?
1: Yeah, it's a it's a great point, and I have to admit, when I even when I was on the board of independent sector before stepping into this job. I didn't have a full appreciation for the point you make, that it is, it's is—it's this incredible force in our country. So some of the data points that help people get the scope on that is, you know, every year um, about 1.8 million nonprofits, um, whether volunteer-led or professionally-led, are doing myriad things from direct service and health and human service to uh, food banks to arts institutions or think tanks or philanthropic institutions or, you know, the largest single block of civil society are religious institutions Mm. and folks forget that. So the number of professional folks, people who are actually earning um, uh, wages are, are about 14 million across the United States. And then uh, those 1.8 million organizations mobilize about 63 million volunteers every Mm. year. And Americans are incredibly uh, generous. So um, last year, um, there was donations of about $420 billion. And the vast majority of that, about 80%, 75%, um, were individuals making individual donations? So people give, they volunteer, and then the last form of civic engagement we care about is voting, hmm. um, and which is kind of the the most pervasive civic act. At least last year, that folks did. So it is huge, hmm. um, and uh, if all of those institutions were thinking about kind of contributing democratically, like literally, kind of how we form folks that are citizens in this country, and I use citizen as a small C, not as a capital C, Mm. um, then I think our country would uh, get back online very quickly.
0: Mm, That is uh, really remarkable to understand the breadth and and impact of the sector. Thank you so much for that data. Um, I was... um, uh, noting when you talked about what independent sector does and how it's evolved over time that you are working to include more community voice and smaller nonprofits. So talk about your your interest in, in uh, lifting up uh, community voice.
1: Let me be really clear. We're in an evolutionary phase. As a community organizer, this was a very sobering reality to me when I stepped into this job, that if you think about The scope that I just laid out of the kind of magnitude of civil society. An independent sector was charged with representing, being a representative, a leader organization, caring about the health of civil society in the U.S. So voice matters. Who gets input into where we put our time and the resources we have, and how we leverage that to change public perception and advocate for policy is critical. So when I looked at the numbers, we have 450 members, a subset of those members, let's just talk about public policy, about 35 served on a committee. And of that 35, you can imagine, there was a subset maybe of eight that were really quite active and, you know, strong advocates. So it became apparent to me that a very small number of individuals representing large kind of coastal institutions, primarily we're disproportionately driving the agenda mm-hmm. for our work. Mm-hmm. And so what we did is we um, we still want to retain, in a sense, old power, if you know the work of Henry Timms and Jeremy Himes, the sense that that still matters. So these strong institutions still have a valence. But we had to have a counterbalance to that. So we um, kind of blew up our old kind of trade association conference, and we developed something called Upswell, which is really a platform that is shared by all of civil society. It is, it is the vital meeting ground where anybody and everybody can participate and come. And we've fundamentally democratized access by changing our pricing structure so folks who are small nonprofits or volunteers have a much more accessible way to get in, and those who have resources can pay a little bit more to provide access to uh, those who don't. And then we have open sourced content as opposed to driven the agenda out of our office to really get a sense that there is a way for folks who are doing a, a wide range of of things to have a platform to share their stories far beyond their maybe small nonprofit into a national sphere. Hmm. And the last thing we do is we pay attention to the content that's being driven by the community, and then we begin to create what we call this meaning-making function, listening to the tension that's created in the discourse at Upswell. And that then begins to influence what our public policy folks pay attention to.
0: That's that's fantastic. I, I know that such an important issue we're all grappling with is how to give voice to those who are often marginalized in conversation, whether it's individuals or particular communities or particular uh, organizations. So I applaud you for the work that you're doing to make sure that the independent sector is, is inclusive and uh, is a, a megaphone for the voice of, of those who aren't often heard. That's really a great way that you're shifting the organization. I'd like to shift to To a a slightly different topic. This spring, you wrote about philanthropy's big bets in the Stanford Social Innovation Review. Um, I would love to hear you talk about what exactly is a big bet and why they are important.
1: Sure. Uh, It's a great innovation. So big bets are uh, very simple. It's a notion that a philanthropic institution, whether it be an individual, high net worth individual through his or her various means or um, traditional philanthropy, um, provide substantially more capital to a nonprofit than they normally would. So most nonprofits still fund themselves in programmatic ways. You know, you have a project, you get project funding with a little bit of overhead, and that's it. A big bet says, you know what, let's not talk about project. Let's talk about the, your organization's vision for impact. How are you thinking categorically about either solving this problem rather than just providing direct service, which direct service, by the way, is very important, mm-hmm. but many of us spend most of our time in programmatic direct service never thinking about solving the problem. Mm-hmm. So big bets were a challenge to nonprofits to say, if you had 10x what you normally have, what would you do to actually drive impact? And we've seen a set of experiments across the United States in a variety of ways. So, um, the uh, you know, one that's, uh, that I have the most experience with was the capital aggregation strategy that came out of the Edna Connell clark Foundation mm-hmm. that has evolved into the Bloom, uh, Blue Meridian Partnership, which is just a phenomenal example that says the most effective organizations that are able to get their head above just the direct service or daily activity and say, how might we actually – Fundamentally, go from programmatic excellence to problem solving, and what are the resources necessary? The final thing I'll say, though, about big bets that I am a huge fan of is they tend to drive more towards general operating. Mm. So they really say to a local or a national nonprofit, We trust that you are the practitioner expert, and we're going to provide the set of resources for you to have the fungible space to be able to continually make decisions. Be a learning organization and allocate your resources in a way that you and the board see fit to drive that impact.
0: Hmm. And do you see any organizations um, planning big bets in the future or areas where you think there are opportunities for big bets? What do you think the future holds for this approach to philanthropic investing?
1: So I think that uh, big bets are still um, growing, and there are two dimensions. One is There is a need to open up the imagination of those leading nonprofits to think much more uh, categorically about what they're capable of doing with, you know, substantially more resources than they they would have ever imagined themselves having. So an example of a philanthropic institution that I think helped create that, uh, in a sense, demand for more resources was the MacArthur Foundations and their 100 and Change. Mm -hmm. Um, they really, uh, I thought the way they ran that process was phenomenal and they helped nonprofits begin to think quite differently. And then the other side is that, you know, Gates and Blue Meridian and a number of these leaders have said we need to actually create a momentum on the donor side. And so, you know, I think the uh, giving pledge is a good example mm-hmm. of the folks, billionaires that are saying, we've amassed far more than we possibly could ever spend in our lifetime. What would it look like if we were beginning to give away substantial amounts of our wealth in our lifetime? So they're beginning to create, a, I hope, a marketplace where nonprofits who are beginning to imagine you could spend a lot more money and then the connection with those you know, folks who are able to mm-hmm. allocate You know, 10x of what most of us could ever imagine Mm -hmm. in our daily leadership.
0: Well, one of the things you said is important about uh, taking advantage of big bets is leadership. So I, I would like to talk about the work that independent sector does about in terms of cultivating the next generation of nonprofit leaders. You have an engine leadership program. I'm curious what new challenges you think the next generation of leaders are going to face and what do you think they're inheriting from today's leaders?
1: It's very, very clear to me that the um, leadership skills um, that many of us over the last 20 years really built as a a strong skill set. And, you know, I would attribute the strategic philanthropy coupled with the adaptation um, that folks like Bridgepan have brought into the sector around good consulting management taught us to run really good operations with impact as a goal and, Um, really good uh, strategic uh, business planning to drive sustainability. Uh, But a lot of that was built out of a model that is less and less applicable given the dynamism, how quickly the world is changing. Mm -hmm. So I think uh, uh, younger leaders are going to have to be able to manage an agile leadership um, that kind of has a couple of, uh, I would say, four core characteristics, one is they're gonna to have to be able to, um, be able to lead uh, in constant change. Mm-hmm. And that means an ability to both use data and mobilize through influence their own institutions and uh, partners. The second thing is I think that there's gonna to have to be an ability to be innovative. So a tolerance for failure as um, a kind of characteristic that was not rewarded when I was coming up through the ranks. Mm-hmm. Um, and what I mean by failure is being a learning organization, mm-hmm. that you don't, you know, that you, you are able to publicly share what worked and what didn't. And then the final thing is, I think that there is going to be um, a increased capacity in leaders to do what I would call cultivate an internal life. Mm-hmm. So um, this ability to understand yourself, um, to be reflective, to have Um, a commitment to your own self-knowledge, and to really mind your value set. Because I hold that the more adaptive, the more innovative a leader has to be, the more that she or he is going to have to be quite in touch with the values that motivate him or her to drive the adaptation.
0: The question I was going to follow up with is how you see leaders really doing that work to grapple with one of your key issues that we're facing around racial equity.
1: So, you know, um, I am deeply encouraged in the nonprofit sector. I would say that on the positive side, there is more um, commitment and more tools and more discussion than ever I've seen. Mm -hmm. At the same time, I think... Uh, we're seeing a time in our country where there is real forces for retrenchment. We often can begin to otherize, no matter what our commitments are, somebody that disagrees with us. Mm-hmm. So I think there is a, a, a really important discipline for all of us who are especially committed to this notion of um, you can never exclude anybody by any dimension, that they, we all, the community must flourish as a whole that we're uh, attending to our commitment to racial equity while also not otherizing even those folks that we disagree with.
0: Mm. I mentioned as I introduced you that you were a former Children and Family Fellow. I am curious what you learned from the program and what you feel you still carry and use in your work today. I know it was a um, a moment in your own leadership journey that we've talked about before. What do you still carry from the fellowship?
1: Oh gosh, a lot. Uh, so I'll just name a couple of things and focus in on one. Uh, first of all, the, uh, my classmates and then the larger Casey Network have been just a constant source of joy, of uh, co-learning, of being challenged, of being rescued at times. So just you know, having a community of folks where there is a shared set of values and a shared set of experience is just a gift. Mm-hmm. The second thing is the um, what has emerged from the fellowship as the result, count work, has been a very, very powerful gift to me. And um, as you well know, uh, independent sector is one of a number of hub organizations, which means we've said we believe that the the results count framework is so valuable that we're going to fully embrace it and metabolize it into our organization and, insofar as we can, share that out and model how that that works. The reason I think the results count work is so powerful is that it drives towards impact, which is something I have a, a natural valence for but embedded in the very design of it is a racial equity framework. Mm-hmm. So in the in the very design of it if you're following impact you will necessarily increase racial equality which i think is you know a deep commitment that we here make. And the final thing i'll say is just this that the i said to you earlier about this reflective component you know embedded in the Casey Fellowship program is this notion of person role and system. And the person and there's a very strong uh, acknowledgement that unless you're attending to your person, both kind of as a friend of mine says, drinking while you pour, <laughs> making sure you're nurturing and growing mm. while you are giving, then it's really hard for you to be in your role as a leader and working on systems change. Mm. Your role is that you're conscious of stepping up into your leadership, whether you're the you know in the C-suite or the the, the person at the uh, the top of the the organization or you're you're not, that we all have this ability to fully exercise our role, and there are both strengths and weaknesses or limitations to that, and fully understanding that when you show up in the world, you're exercising, um, uh, you're fully utilizing the role you have to drive impact. And then the final piece is this notion of system, that um, this goes again to the racial equity piece, that in order to create change, Um, You have to understand how the structures, policies, practice within your organization and the environment in which you operate are actually serving to move towards impact or frustrating that. Mm -hmm. And so you can be great programmatically and you can be terrible, terrible your systems understanding and you will never get the kind Mm -hmm. of change I think we all aspire.
0: Yeah. I'm curious how much you think leaders of nonprofits are attentive to and thinking about the systemic issues. We know there are lots of organizations who do and should do the direct service work, but how much of the sector do you think is really about this this system change work that ultimately is what's going to, as you said, get us to the impact we're all seeking?
1: Yeah, it's a great question. And it's it's, uh, it's in this job, I've learned um, more about why... Um, uh, I think it doesn't happen nearly as much as it needs to. So let me just uh, I'll outline a couple of things and see what catches your attention. Mm-hmm. First, I think, the way the financing for most nonprofits keeps nonprofit leaders and their boards more focused on the financial sustainability of the organization rather than the energy required to move the systems to solve the problems they really aspire to solve. Mm -hmm. So we have a financing structuring problem. The second is that there is a fair amount of conservatism certainly among both nonprofit and philanthropic institutions about what is considered permissible in terms of systems work, and specifically around advocacy. Mm-hmm. There's a lot of misunderstanding about what you can and can't do. So Mm -hmm. it's something we think a lot about at independent sector, the clarification of those rules. So it is crystal clear uh, that uh, nonprofits and their boards are really quite encouraged and have a fair amount of latitude to represent their expertise as community experts in helping rework systems. Mm -hmm. And then finally, I think there is a norm in this country that looks to nonprofits as second-class citizens. Mm -hmm. And uh, I've been at this a long time, and I've been at many, many policy tables where the nonprofit is brought in as the contractor to the policy after it's already been formulated, hmm. not as the um, expert that could help really uh, develop policies that might be um, much m- much more far-reaching in their systemic impact. Hmm. So there's a bunch of things that I think need to change.
0: Could I – ask you about one I think might be a barrier, and it's that the system's barriers are almost like spider webs. I think they're invisible to lots of people. If you don't understand the history of this country, if you don't understand the way institutional barriers have been constructed, um, you are unable to fight against them. And so I think in some ways, many nonprofits don't even see the barriers that they are fighting against. Do you see that in the sector as well?
1: For sure. If My observation is when nonprofits are, in a sense, systemically active, they tend to be around trying to get more public resources in service of their work. And they don't have, to your point, the habit, uh, and for lots of reasons, of asking why the system is set up the way it is and whether their work is actually just com-
0: Complicit. Uh, kind
1: of being com- complicit, <laughs> exactly. <laughs> mm-hmm. With the the system design. Or if there is another way around, the system's reworking. Um, so, yes, I think that's that's spot on. Thank,
0: thanks. I, I appreciate that conversation. What piece of advice do you have to offer to nonprofits that are just starting out? I heard you say as we began there, um, nearly 2 million nonprofits in this country doing a wide range of work, but we know that there are new ones created every day. What is it that nonprofits ought to be thinking about as they get started um, and may not have uh, figured out how to achieve the, the the impact that they want to have?
1: So um, I'm going to answer this in two very distinct ways. The first is um, the brutal fact that I think um, if a new nonprofit comes into existence, that if it truly aspires to create systems impact, then it should immediately assess who they can partner with and who they can learn with. Uh, It's rare these days that there aren't nonprofits that have been in the space doing work for a long time. doesn't mean they're necessarily getting it right, but for a new nonprofit to assume that there's nothing to be learned or that there isn't a way to support an an existing set of actors, I think is uh, to waste a lot of time and resources. So that would be my first really strong piece of advice. Mm -hmm. Learn learn to uh, partner in order to accelerate impact. The second thing is it's almost diametrically opposed, which is I so deeply believe in um, uh, every member of society stepping into the work of civil society that I would say um, nonprofits that uh, provide meaningful engagement of citizens are deeply valuable. Mm. And so to ensure that they are with their professional staff and their volunteers really being intentional about the kind of ability for folks to bring the, the fullest of their talents to bear against the work is just a constant demand, regardless of how big or small you are. And I just think it's so valuable.
0: Thank you for that advice, Dan. The, the lesson that we can always learn from others and we should always find new ways to engage everybody in our community are really important uh, lessons for all of us. Thank you so much. And thank you for your leadership of independent sector. You've been a longtime partner of the Casey Foundation and a longtime partner to so many in the field. So thank you very much for the work that you do and for your leadership. It's great to be associated with you.
1: Oh, uh, well, thank you. And, um, and I'm grateful for the partnership of the foundation with you. It's a real uh, both a joy and um, I learn and grow every time.
0: Thank you so much, and thanks to everyone for listening today. If you enjoyed this episode, please head to Apple Podcasts to rate the show or share your feedback on Twitter using the KCcast hashtag. As always, more information on CaseyCast, this interview, and the Annie E. Casey Foundation's work is available at aecf.org forward slash podcast. Until next time, I wish all of America's kids and all of you a bright future.